I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome also to November 11th, 2021. That's right. Today is Veterans Day, as we celebrated here in the United States and in many nations around the world. We lift up and we give honor to those who served their nation. So to all of the veterans and the families of veterans out there today listening, we thank you for your service. And we bring forward to you today a podcast that uh, that elevates not only the work you've done, but the impact of it in your nation and in nations around the world. And thinking about organizations that support our veterans better than maybe any other organization out there. I think of Focus Marines Foundation. This remarkable organization serves our veterans who return home from war, still struggling with some of the experiences of being involved in that war. Individuals who may be dealing with anxiety or depression, addictions, insomnia, isolation, struggling in their relationships, self-doubt, suicidal thoughts, struggling in life. No one, no one, my friends, does it any better than Focus Marines Foundation. And one of the leaders that I met through this wonderful organization is our guest today. Nick Popovich is the United States Marine Corps Gunnery Sergeant. He is a Silver Cross recipient. He is a Purple Heart recipient. He is a Marine's Marine. And more than all of this, this gentleman is a humble servant. As you listen to this episode today on Veterans Day, you're going to meet a guy who at first could not do a single pull-up. He's going to talk about how he learned to do one and then two and three, and then it went onward from there. You're going to hear about a gentleman who served his nation several times in several different tours, who was wounded when an RPG hit not only his tank, it hit him directly. His survival is nothing short of a miracle. But as you listen to Nick unpack his life, what you are going to be sure of is your life, my friends, your life is also nothing short of a miracle. So citizens, brothers and sisters, family members, friends of the Live Inspired podcast, my encouragement now is to sit back, buckle up, get ready for a wild ride with one of truly one of my favorite human beings. His name is Nick Popovich. Nick, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Uh, thanks for having me here, John. Appreciate it. 
Dude, uh, you, you heard a moment ago that uh, the, you know, your fan club is packed with ladies and gentlemen and friends from around the world, but I'm the president of it. I, I get to lead the, lead the song and lead the march. So Nick, I love you, man. I respect you. And for those who don't yet know your story or they haven't yet read your book or they haven't had the honor of shaking your hand and, and looking you in the eye, if you were to bump into them randomly somewhere and they said, hey, you look like a big guy, what, what, what do you do in your life? What do you do professionally? How do you respond to that these days? <laughs> My friends like to refer to me as a migrant worker because after the Marine Corps, I've done a number of things and I've moved a lot. And I've been very blessed that uh, after, the, after the Marine Corps, I retired, I'm a retired Marine. Uh, after the Marine Corps though, I've, I've, I guess the blessing in life that now I can do kind of what I want to do, not what I have to do. And so, because my kids are grown up, they, they, they're out of school and now it's just me and my wife and we do what's fun and we do what's fun till it's not fun no more. And then I move on to something else. So that's led to political campaigns. I worked in high tech. I worked in education. Uh, I worked in the veteran sector. And uh, my most current thing is I'm working for uh, Webster University as an assistant campus director. And as a St. Louis, Missouri guy, as a man who lives in Webster, uh, I, I can respect the work that you're doing with Webster University. So let's back out of St. Louis a little bit, away from Upshur University, even away from the core a little bit, all the way back to Indiana. When I've met you every single time, now a couple dozen times, I see a Marine's Marine, a, a man who's been to the battle, experienced some hardship, and came through it somehow even stronger, maybe because of it, or maybe in spite of it, but you've definitely come through the storms. I was amazed, though, in learning more about your story that you, you weren't, at least early in your days, you never saw that for yourself. That wasn't your vision no. for your life. So let's go all the way back to Northern Indiana, Eastern Chicago, man. Talk about your childhood. I, I had a beautiful childhood. I grew up in a suburban neighborhood, you know, with all the row houses and all that. There were every, all our parents knew each other. The sort of place that had block parties, all the kids hung out with each other. So every day when you came home from school, and these were immigrant families, so all met lots of kids. Yeah, I mean, there always was just, you know, a good dozen, 20 kids out, out in the street, hanging out, playing every day. So it was a fun place to grow up. You know, I, I was also surprised to know that you were self-described a little dorky. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> Man, I don't think any of the Marines you've been a drills instructor for thought at some point in your life, you might've been a dork in high school. So unpack that for me a little bit. I was very much into, into school very much into books. I, I read a lot and I was into science, really into science. I want to be a physicist in life was what I was, what I saw myself doing in high school. One day somebody was describing people in the military as kids who couldn't afford to go to college. I got no choice. They joined the military. And I was really offended. At that. And again, he knew, he knew me personally. And he said, Nick, why'd you join the Marines? And then I had to laugh because that was originally what took me into a recruiter's office was the, it actually was an army recruiter, took me to a recruiter's office to it was for the college money. And I was just blessed that during that time, while the, while, before I'd signed anything or raised my right hand, a Marine recruiter happened to call me on the telephone. He asked me what I was doing. I told him nothing, you know, which is true. And uh, he wanted to speak with me. And I, I was too scared to tell him no. It was truth be told was really the only reason I ended up meeting with this guy. And when he got to talking to me about about going out in the Pacific, going around the world, all these things I was going to see as a Marine. He talked about the teamwork. I wasn't even thinking about college anymore. I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in on this. This just sounds great. All through this, I'm thinking, okay, this all sounds good. And I'm thinking Marines are, you know, they have that certain image. Now, there's no way I can get through boot camp. And I, I told him that. I said, there's no way I can get through that boot camp. 
And he said something to me that I'll never forget. I used to use it myself as a drill instructor. He said, Nick, if you don't quit on us, we will never quit on you. And that was the most powerful thing I'd ever heard in my life. I said, that's it. I'm, I'm in. And, and no truer statement was ever uttered. By the end of boot camp, I was proud of the fact they couldn't break me, that I, I would not quit. I mean, just to back the story up a little bit and slow it down a little bit and also set the stage for how, and I mean this with compassion, but how unremarkable you were as a young man. You <laughs> set the appointment with this guy and you ghost him. You don't go. You, you are a very comprehensive reader. Yeah, I, I, I gave the Reader's Digest first. The long story is that he set the appointment at his office, said, come meet me here at such and such time. And I was just too scared to tell him no, but I had no intention of going. So I agreed <laughs> to it knowing I, there was no way I was going to go to it. Right. And the time came for the appointment. I was sitting in my house and I didn't show, obviously. Then the, the phone number in my home rang and he said, where are you at? And I just, you know, sit at my house. He said, stay there. He came to my house, and that's actually where that interview happened. Corporal Delegal, I owe him, uh, owe him every great thing that happened in my life after that moment. Nick, he he saw within you what you did not see within yourself, and and really at that moment, what you did not have yet to offer. You, you wrote after saying, "Yeah, you know, I I think I'm in on this." That at that moment, you could not do a single chin up. You cannot pull your weight up, not one single time. Not one, and that's that's pretty pathetic for a marine. That's pretty bad. Yes, sir. Well, it, and by the end of boot camp, and then by the end of that first year out there, you were able to do 50 in succession without tiring out whatsoever. And then you wrote this quote, and I'd like you just to tell us what it means, but it's just beautiful. The greatest difficulty always arises in the beginning. The greatest difficulty always arises in the beginning. Once you can do a pull-up and then a few pull-up, you're on your way to doing many, many, many more. Because I know you're not just writing about pull-ups here. So tell me, tell me what this really means. Well, you know, in the beginning, it's the easiest time to quit because that's when you're, you're, you're fighting against yourself, against, against inertia. And I, you know, the science nerd in me, but I would always tell people that later, especially like in the core, that inertia is a powerful thing. You just got to get this train going. Once you get it going, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to start feeding itself. And it's gonna start, you're going to start seeing results. Your body's going to start taking those limits off of it. Because it'll it'll know it knows what it can do. It's just your mind that's stopping it. And then in the beginning, getting your mind to realize that that's the only thing stopping you. That's the hardest part. Once you get your chin over that bar, then you realize, okay, I can do this. And then then it's just a matter of doing more. You and I uh, work together at the Focus Program, and when guys are dealing with something very difficult, I would always use the pull-up analogy with them. You can't avoid the problem. You have to do more of the problem. If this bothers you, you have to do more of this to get by it. You did 13 weeks as part of boot camp. What was the hardest part of that? <laughs> everything. Everything's hard. I, I don't care what it is in recruit training and boot camp. Everything is hard. And it's, it's, it's made to be difficult. So I guess the hardest thing, because I would become a drill instructor myself later on, 12 years after that, what you're really trying to train people to do is to think under duress, because that's the hardest thing to do in combat. It's the hardest thing to do. In, in anything difficult you'll do in life because you're under duress, but you still have to be able to think clearly. And that's trained 24-7. And if you're a good drill instructor, as I thought I was, you're amping the stress level up to a thousand percent on everything they do so that even the simplest task is difficult. In my case, I discovered so much about myself that I never thought I could make it through this. And making it through that was made me so proud of who I was. I knew I could do good in like school. I knew I was good at that, but I wasn't tough. To prove to myself that I was tough enough to do that was very, very important to me. What was the power during boot camp in some regards breaking down the individual uh, 
sense of pride, not pride in the work they did it, but pride in thinking that it's life is all about them. Why That's, is that important to break that down, Nick? It's funny because when I talk to guys now, having been a drill instructor, because I know how it's done now, but when I was went through it as a recruit, I had no idea how it happened. Is everything is trained by the antithesis of it. Courage is trained by fear. Honor is trained by treating people unfairly and commitment is trained by failure. Wow. You make people fail constantly and show them that you will not quit. No matter how much failure we pile on you, you will not quit. And they learn that about themselves. Treat them unfairly. And I mean, myself going through it, same thing. You get punished for the guy next to you. You get punished for things you didn't do. You get punished just because the sun's out. And then through all that unfairness, you realize, despite that, I know how to treat people fairly. It's an amazing process. We'll come back to the Marines in a moment. But it, it turns out that you and your military service is not the only part of your life that I find amazing. Another part takes off in 1990 at the Black Angus. What happened <laughs> way back, dude, in 1990 at the Black Angus? That's where I met my wife, just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. And that's an accomplishment. First night I went out there, I knew I was going to marry that woman. I knew that was the woman I wanted. It took me about a year to convince her of that. We married about a year later. It's a powerful partnership. And, you know, you're a Marine. You're a drill instructor, but there's always that likelihood that you will be leaving Camp Pendleton and heading somewhere else, active duty. Did you talk about that as a couple? No, um, never did. I wanted to do 30 years. I had, I had another many years to go looking back on. I loved it. I loved every minute, but I never thought about life after it. I never really knew how to describe that to people because when, when, after I got wounded and I got medically retired, people would say to me in April, they'd say like, oh, you must be so happy now. No more deployments, no more this, no more that. They didn't quite understand that for us, the base was our home. That was, we loved the base. We loved our life there. This was a sad day, the day we had to leave it. That was a tough pill to swallow. The civilian world is so amazing because there's so much opportunity out here. There's so many amazing people. Not too long after I got out, I ran for Congress. And it was one of the most amazing experiences because if you go to every corner of your community, as you should, if you're trying to get people to trust you. And I was just amazed at the genius of people you would find in every corner of, of the community. Nick, let's, let's talk about September 11th, 2001. Where were you with the reports of planes going into buildings and the Pentagon under attack and another plane crash in Pennsylvania? Where were you when you started learning about this? I was stationed in San Diego. I was finishing on my tour as a drill instructor. So they, there was this morning show that I used to listen to. And these guys and them were so funny. They were hysterically funny. And I listened to them every morning because I'd go to work laughing because they were so funny. But then when I turned them on, they weren't being funny at all. They were, they were very serious. And they were talking about the plane that it, one had, just one had hit when I turned it on. And by the time I'm leaving to go in, the second one had hit. And so now everybody knows this is an intentional act and all that. The amazing thing for me that day was because we lived at base housing and seeing armed Marines walking through, patrolling through our base housing in an anti-terrorism security operation. And I remember thinking, whoa, the world has just changed quite a bit in one day. And then I knew that we were getting ready to go to war. I'd been uh, the earlier version of that, the Gulf War, I, I was in on that one. And I knew it happened really fast because like when that one happened, the Saddam invaded Kuwait and then like a week later, we're sitting over there in the desert defending Saudi Arabia. Yes. And so I got to go to combat with my recruits, which was an amazing experience. When were you originally deployed? 
the initial invasion of Iraq. I, I know it was Super Bowl Sunday because the pilot was giving us the scores when we were in the air. So it was January, February-ish of 03. I think we invaded with like a quarter million troops. So it takes a few months for everything to get over there and get in place. I think we invaded uh, late, late March. Nice Nick. time of year to be there, actually, because it could get pretty hot this summer. Going there in the winter is much, much better. <laughs> so it's pretty pleasant. And you've written and you've shared in the past that, you know, this was your second time over there. First Gulf War, number one, you learned a lot about the people then. Now is your second time through. There is no love lost until you start getting to know these individuals as individuals. You, you wrote that you had a genuine fondness for the Iraqi people. Absolutely. Absolutely love the people. And uh, I had no reason to love them before when we fought them in uh, the Gulf War. It was all military. There was no civilians. You never, I never seen Iraqi civilian the entire, that entire war because they were all in uniforms out in the open desert fighting or, or surrendering as it was the case with many of them. But in 03, now this was going to get fought in and amongst the civilian population. We got classes on the, on Arab culture and on things so we would understand certain things, how they, how they think the way they do, why they do certain things. But I tell you, once I got to know the Iraqi people, because they just lived there, you know, they lived under a dictator. These are people who just lived there. Yeah, the people were fighting us. That's one thing. Some were fighting us because that was their that was their country. They, they'll fight for their nation, just like I'm fighting for mine. None personal. It's just the way it is. But then as a transition into the once it transitioned into the government fell and now we're starting to build a democracy there. It was just a beautiful thing because you see these Iraqi people that would just. Just, just getting this first taste of freedom. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. You know, in April, April 9, 2003, you're a, a photographic superhero for a moment and you're able to share it not only with your, uh, the guys that you're serving with, but also a very special person back at home. I, I'd love you, Gunny, to share with our listeners and our viewers today where you were on April 9, 2003 and what happened. So on April 9th, we were, well, we were in Baghdad. We woke up that day in Baghdad. We just broke the perimeter of the city like a day or two prior. We were just slowly slogging our way into the city. After like a day or two in the city, the people just disappeared. They were all gone because the days before, everybody was out in the street. They were all carrying goods. And they, what they were doing is they were going in the government buildings and pulling everything out of them and taking what they could get. And then after that, they just disappeared. They all went away. And I think that's when they saw that the government had collapsed. And now they didn't know what was going to happen next. They knew their life was going to change very drastically, but they didn't know for good or bad. They just hid. And then our commanding officer starts giving us movement orders. And then we head into, into central Baghdad, a place called Ferdo Square. And there's a big, like a 40-foot statue of Saddam Hussein. There's a big hotel. There was a downtown. It was, you know, yes. big high rises all the way around. And this big statue, it obviously was a very significant place to the Iraqi people. For us, it just was a good place to set a perimeter. We just encircle with the tanks and point them out and wait for our next movement order. And the Iraqi people saw that and they saw this, you know, because in, in the Saddam Iraq, you're not allowed to speak out against Saddam. You're not allowed to speak out against the government. And they put these images everywhere in that country to remind the people the government is watching you. You know, so these images, they're not just statues. They're not just pictures of Saddam. They're not just murals on them. They're, 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 they're messages to the people. And the Iraqi people saw this image of Saddam and now it was surrounded by Americans. They thought, you know what, maybe it's time to come out and try and trust these people. And then they started coming out from where they were hiding more and more and more. And before long, we had hundreds of them in, in, that, in, that, in the middle of our tanks, right in the middle of this circle that we had formed. 
and they started celebrating, they started going nuts. And then of course, the media who were also hiding because the Palestine Hotel was right next to it. And that's where all the media were. They started coming out and they started taking pictures of all this stuff. So I'm seeing all these cameras and all. And that's where that statue of Saddam Hussein got pulled down. It, it was just an amazing place to be. But the part that ties me to April on that, commanding officer comes by and he's smoking a cigar and he wants to use my radio. And I give him my handset and then he hands me the cigar he's smoking. And so I just, you know, I'm puffing on the cigar up in the cupola of my tank and an AP photographer shoots a picture of that. And as I would find out later, that would run on front pages all over the world. It was just, you know, because the Saddam statue's in the back, you got tank commander smoking a cigar. It looks like a victory. The, the AP photographer, I run across him later on that day, about an hour later. And uh, he says, I'm, you made me a lot of money today, my friend. He was a French guy. And I said, really, how'd I do that? And he said, he told me about the picture he took. He said, people are buying it all over the world. I said, okay. I said, well, then you obviously have satellite communications. I want you to do me a favor. I'm going to write down a phone number, my home phone number. Call this number and tell the woman who picks it up to watch this on TV. And uh, he hands me a sat phone and he says, uh, call yourself, my friend. And I didn't know how to dial a satellite phone. I'd never had one in my hands before. So he had to actually show me how to do it. And then uh, I called April up. She picked it up. I said, hey, turn on the TV. And she laughed. She said, turn on the TV. She said, we've been watching this for hours because I guess here stateside, it was a big deal when, when the Americans got to downtown Baghdad. Such a special time. And, and it also happened to be uh, April and my anniversary. So I got to tell her happy anniversary from Baghdad. So it's, it's this amazing story. And what that town square represented is what I think all of us around the world were hoping for Iraq, that you yes. tear down a symbol, you tear down a villain a dictator who has been gassing his own people and doing everything else horrendous. And then freedom starts to take off. And clearly that's not what went down next. The country becomes more and more violent, more and more dangerous. A year after that celebration, you find yourself not far away from Baghdad and El Fallujah. Talk about what was going on in Fallujah and why, why all of a sudden you and your guys were out there. Yeah, Fallujah was a place to be. Now, when, when, this, when the statue went down, the government collapsed, you know, we saw because we stayed in Baghdad for a while after that. And you could see every day the, the power was still out. The garbage was piling up. No, the economy was not moving. Everybody was just there. There was no nobody was working. The economy had collapsed. In addition, the government collapsing, the economy had collapsed. And, you know, and I'm no expert on global affairs or nothing, but I'm looking at this saying this. It's just a matter of time before the people start getting unhappy about this. I really wish something could have been in place to get that economy up and running right away. We tried our, our bit right in our little section, but that's when the insurgency started growing. We went home shortly after that. We got relieved by an army unit because we took a Navy ship home. So it took me about two months to get home. But by the time we got home, wow. the insurgency was already starting to kick up. And so they were sending one company back and I wasn't in it. It was a different company. And I went down to battalion. I said, hey, I said, I want in that company, the one that's going. Let's talk yeah. about why you decided to go back. Because uh, many sane listeners, and maybe the guy asking the question right now would realize, you did your part, man. You served. Now you've been in two conflicts, two wars. You did exactly what you signed up to do. So why take on that risk? Why leave your wife behind? Why leave your two boys? Why, why, why do that? Oh, I believe in it. I believe in what we do. What we're doing over there, I believe in it. That's my job. That's what, I, that's what I joined the Marines to do. If I wanted to stay home, I'd get out. You know, you, you wanted to end up on the very tippity top of that spear, man. That's exactly where you find yourself on April 7, 2004. 
Take us and, back to uh, what you remember from that day. That's the battle, the battle for Fallujah. Now, this is something we're really good at as a military. The, the counterinsurgency can be difficult at times and be very challenging discipline-wise because it's very frustrating. Enemy uh, hides and they, they, they make themselves difficult to find, difficult to engage. They trick you. They try and fool you into fighting against civilians, things like that. But in Fallujah, this was everything we were trained to do. This was just lots of bad guys, lots of good guys, and we're just slugging it out in the city. So this is, this is kind of right in our wheelhouse. This is what we do good. And we were doing it very well. Uh, my particular tank section, I had a platoon of infantry, and we were, we were really putting it on the enemy something fierce. And we'd been doing it for about 36 hours by this point. We had just been wearing them out. And so, and we were the deepest penetration into the city at this point. And so you really kind of get the enemy's full, full effort. The farther you get in the city, the more your full effort they get because you're the, you're the, the biggest threat to them at this point. And so I was engaged with them. It was just, if you'd, if you'd asked me before I got hit, if you'd have said, Nick, make a mental picture of how you're going to get wounded, I probably would have pictured something very similar to how it happened, which is another reason it makes it very easy for me to live with because it's kind of kind of just kind of way if if, if i'm going to get hit this is kind of how i would expect it would happen mm-hmm. you know just lots of good guys shooting lots of bad guys shooting every once in a while bad guy makes a good shot and that's all this really it's really kind of that simple i could tell you the longer version of it but it's really that simple i was leading an attack uh heading to an intersection they used their multiple rpg shots on my tank and uh one of them careens off my helmet blows my helmet apart and uh, it, now the RPG is, is just what the name suggests. It's a grenade with a rocket to make it go. And the, the rocket came in, hit right about here, blew the helmet off my head, blew the helmet into pieces. And uh, luckily, because the rest of my body is in the tank, it's, it, it shielded me from most of it. Plus, the body armor was really good. Um, I, I would never see this part, but my first sergeant told me later that they pulled handfuls of shrapnel out of my flak jacket. Wow. But none of that, none of that penetrated everywhere. The body armor was covered, not a scratch on me, you know, it, but obviously it can't cover everything. Can't cover your neck, can't cover your face, things like that. So I, I had a pretty good piece of shrapnel go through. There's like a divot out of my, uh, my temple right here. And it went laterally across my head, went almost all the way through my head and ended up lodged behind my left, behind my left eye, uh, about inch and a half, two inches back into my head. So if you draw a line from there to about two inches behind my eye, that's your trajectory it took. So if you, and the piece of shrapnel is about half the size of your little finger, you know, so it's a pretty good, pretty good chunk of metal going all the way through your head. Nick, if, I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you about what happens next, but even before that, even in hearing you say that, and, and I'm looking right at you and you back at me, I'm amazed that a human being survived an RPG to the head. That <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it, it, it's utterly shocking, man. I've, I've never heard of it this ever happening before. And you and I have shared stories of it happening where the individual who was hit passed away, of course. Mm-hmm. That's the natural reaction. How often do you think about this? And you're like, dude, I, uh, yeah, my life is hard. And there's going to be some challenges that John and I are about to share with his listeners. But I cannot believe I'm alive. I, a lot in the beginning. A lot in the beginning, I used to think about it a lot because the first thing that happened when I when I finally, you know, start having conscious thoughts, because once that happens, you know, then you're just in the survival mode for a little bit there. And then uh, then you're once the, the medics start working on you, you spend most of your time after that asleep. You know, but when I finally start having conscious thoughts, and by then I'm 8,000 miles from Iraq, I'm over the land right. in Germany when I start having conscious thoughts. 
when I started having conscious thoughts, the thing that I really used to do was I used to replay how I got hit over, 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 over my head. And I would analyze it to think, what, what should I have done differently? What could I have done differently? And I would look at every decision I made because I, I was a tank commander and I was commanding the lead tank and the lead tank section. So I'm making all the decisions. Not somebody said, go that way. And then I got hit doing it. And I can say, that guy made me go. Now, every decision I'm making is my own. So I analyzed every decision I made to try and figure out where did I make a mistake? Did I make a mistake? And I was pretty happy with every decision I made. You know, maybe, maybe I would have ducked. I don't know. Stagger rockets coming in, you know, but, but no, every decision I made, I was pretty happy with. So I, so that made a lot of this a lot easier mentally to process that I didn't have to look at some like, oh, if only I had done this. I mean, the only, the only, if only I had would have been to not fight at all. Right. But once you're in the fight, you're in it, you know? So yeah, I was pretty happy with every one of those. Every time I would replay it, I was pretty happy with it. Then later on, when I started finding out exactly what the damage was and how it had happened, then I started thinking a lot about that piece of shrapnel that went through my head. And I would replay and I would try and imagine a slightly different trajectory. One lobotomizes me. Yes. To take out both my eyes. You know, there's so much worse that could have happened out of all that, that I guess when I looked at that, that seeing eye piece of shrapnel, that magic piece of shrapnel that managed to, to, I mean, it actually knocked out the bottom of this eye socket to where the eye ended up down in my sinus cavity, but it didn't damage the eyeball itself. It, I, it caught a little bit of shrapnel, but, but repairable. And uh, so, I mean, for such a potentially catastrophic thing for me to have any sight at all. And I spent, I spent quite a bit of time as a, as just completely blind, and that is hard. <laughs> it's hard. I would end up in a VA hospital year, uh, about half a year later. And, you know, ultimately once all the damage is done, now it's time to rehabilitate. And a lot of the instructors were completely blind. And I would watch these guys because I had a little bit of sight. I had enough sight. I'm, I was, I am what's called legally blind. You know, it's just, I can see just not good. Yes. And, uh, I would look at these, these men and women who are completely blind. I was just, I was amazed. I was inspired by them at how, how functional, how smooth they were at doing the things they did. When I, when I processed into that, that particular wing of the hospital, the intake, the intake uh, clerk, completely blind, was typing away all my information on a computer using the, I would find out later, the computer program is called JAWS. She's mm -hmm. typing away. She's asking me my information. I'm just watching what she's doing. I'm just, I, I'm amazed. Holy cow. The lady who, run, who ran that, that, that particular wing of the VA hospital, her name was Liz Jessen. She was a, an accomplished world uh, Nordic skier. I would actually go Nordic skiing with her later, like about a year after that. They were just amazing, amazing people. And so it, in the years that would follow, I would always see all of this stuff like uh, the VA hospital get the crap beat out of it quite a bit over, over through the years of this war. And I used to think, well, was my experience totally different on that one? These were just, just like miracle workers to yes. me. They were the most amazing people I'd ever seen. We could spend so much time talking about that day. We could talk about some 18-year-old tank driver getting you guys out of, out of this place safely, remarkably. We could talk about the CNN crew being there when you pulled up behind the wire. And there's a video, Nick, of you <laughs> bent over this turret. It looks like you're dead. 
uh, bleeding out. And, uh, and then these guys slowly start coming out of this tank. And then all of a sudden the, uh, the Navy Corpsmen start showing up and saving your life. And you fly out to Germany, you wake up and the first phone call you make on a sat phone second time now is to your wife. Uh, and you have the chaplain right beforehand, uh, read, I think it's Romans one eleven. Romans one eleven, yes, sir. We used to write that in uh, in letters back and forth. April and I did because we always we were good at the deployment thing because you've got to be good at that as a husband, wife, as a family man in the Marine Corps. You got to be good at the deployment thing. Your wife and family got to be real good at it. Well, so we so, used to do certain things, and one of the things we would do is we'd write this Bible verse in letters back and forth, and it says in the New International Version, it says, "For I long to see you that I might impart a spiritual gift to give you strength." Mm that you and I will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And I, I, we just loved it because it was, it was simplified. And that's our motto in the Marine Corps, always faithful. And this is about faith and things bigger than yourself. In this case, the Lord, but in, in everything, in all things, having such faith in it that, that we make a gift of it to each other, even if it's just a little verse in a letter to say, hey, I'm still strong over here. You'd be strong over there and we'll be strong together. You know, when you're feeling weak, know the other person's strong. And it was just kind of our way of saying that to each other in every letter. I've always thought a letter was so personal. Seeing the person's handwriting, seeing my wife's handwriting. And I like seeing a, an actual picture that I can put in my pocket more than an electronic picture on a phone now. I really just like that form of communication and being able to put a Bible verse on a letter. There, there's, no, there's no electronic replacement for that stuff. I, I think I think we've lost a little bit. We got away from such a personal yeah. connection to each other. We um, could spend quite a bit of time on Romans 1, 11 and, and, and the idea of a guy 10,000 miles away praying this over his wife and this lady back at home holding on the fort praying this over her husband. The, the first six words, I mean, for I long to see you. I find that so remarkable for a guy who probably will never see again. Like this, this verse that has been holding you together faithfully in the midst of the storm is now one that's going to have to guide you forward throughout the biggest storm that you probably never expected for. I long to see you for I long to see you. And, uh, so we, rather than really spending much more time in Germany, eventually this, this Marine comes home and you can't see her, but you can hear her. Would you, would you just describe the very first time you hear April's voice? Got, on the got off the bus at Balboa Naval Hospital. And uh, she was there uh, waiting for me. And, you know, and I'm supposed to go in and get, get work done and get on the war, but she was there. And I just remember grabbing her and holding on to her. And, and that verse says, it. I mean, for I long to see you, because that's what deployments are all about. You miss this person so much. And it was so amazing, the life you have as a Marine. And again, with this glass half full thing, but this is, this is absolutely true. There's no better thing for a marriage than, than these deployments because you get a new honeymoon every couple of years. You go away and then you come home again as somebody you've just longed to see for so long. And you get this whole new honeymoon every few years in the Marine Corps. And it was just, and, and this was another one of them. they had been gone for a while. And this is one, it's just like a whole new honeymoon again. Now this one's a lot different. This one was a lot different experience for her than it was for me. Because for me, this is, this is normal. I'm, I'm coming home. I'm holding my wife. Everything about this feels normal to me. To her, who can see all this, she's seeing everything is, is, is a lot different. Because, I mean, yes. with the person you're seeing now, there were, as you, <laughs> you understand this, there was a lot of cosmetic work that was going to happen from then to now. 
And uh, like this was a humongous hole right here and stuff like that, where she can actually see inside, you know, my head. God bless her. She never for one second made me feel like anything less than than the person who left. But she was looking at a whole different thing there. She said she would tell me later that she could even smell like it still smelled like burnt flesh and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, she, she's a good poker face. She never, never let out one bit that this was anything other than a normal, uh, normal homecoming. A, a lot of the guys you and I have worked with at Focus and Focus, Focus Marine serves veterans who are returning home who in one way or another are struggling. And many of these guys are dealing, and ladies are dealing with something physical. And many of these guys and ladies have had a partner leave them because of that trauma, because of that injury, or because of the PTSD. And as you have toured various VA centers, you, you hear that story again and again and again, that who they yes, came sir. home to walked out on them. Why do you think April not only did not walk out, but stepped closer? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm just blessed. She's a special person. She's an amazing person. She, she didn't have an easy, easy life prior to meeting me. So uh, the hardship she would face with me would be like I was talking about earlier, those recruits who faced a lot of adversity before they joined the Corps. This is just Tuesday. Maybe it said just that, that she just had, had gone through some rough stuff before I'd met her. And uh, she was, she, she knew that that was, that was the, the thing to do. She, when I've asked her about it, she said, she would look at the past and her and I are very alike on this. And we have a great appreciation for history. Cause like, if you were to ask me about like Fallujah, I'd say, Oh man, what about those Marines who were Quezon or those Marines who, who hit the beach at, at Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima, they lost more in a day than we lost in 10 years in this war. You know, so there, there always was some, somebody who had it, who, who had it a lot harder than you did and they got through it. And April told me she would think about that when the times got hard, but she would think about all these past generations of, of wives who'd sent their husbands off to war and what they went through. And, thing, and when we were in the VA hospital, we had a guy, Chuck, this guy, Chuck, who was in the, on the ward with me. He was in there for age-related macular degeneration, but he was, you know, he was blind. And he would tell stories about when he, when he came home, he was quarantined because he was coming home from the war in the Pacific. And he was corny, couldn't see his wife for like a year. Mm. And we'd heard a lot of these things. And we, we kind of appreciate for history that, that now it's our time. It's our time to do the hard things. This is our, this is our link in the chain. And if it's hard, then this, this, we're meant to go through this. This is our hard time. We're meant to step up. And uh, she just was, was good about that. You, you had a, f- a physical trauma. You had disabilities and challenges. You lost an eye and you lost, what, 90% of the vision in the, the other eye. So you're struggling, Mike. You lost hearing. You're out of balance sometimes. You get nauseous sometimes. Nick, there are other things you go through that you don't tell anybody about. And at the same time, April's going through her own trauma. The life that you had imagined together has now profoundly changed. Yeah. I'm curious, though, because when I met her a couple of years ago and I met you at the same time that night at the celebration, I saw this couple clearly in love. You, you can fake it for a little bit, but you, you can't fake it the way you guys were faking it that night as you held hands <laughs> and also felt comfortable not being next to each other and came back together. And there's joy every single time. So out of raw curiosity, man, how, how did the tragedy in Fallujah that you experienced draw you and April even closer together? 
I guess it goes back to that faith thing. You know, you don't know how strong your faith is till it's tested. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was tested, you know, because our life did change and it changed in a way that neither one of us picked. And then there was even the bit that she would even say, you did pick this. Yes. You volunteered for this. You know, so you did pick this for us. And there was a lot of anger for that. And um, so it was tested. And it was tested. And I think that's when you realize how strong things are is when you test them, when you dig in there, when you, when you pull on it a little bit. And we always had the, we, we've never been a fighting couple. And I think, uh, I think because we always know that when one is, when one has got that going on, the other one needs to be the first aid, not the fuel. <laughs> and we're, ne we're never the ones to be the fuel for the other one. It's just an instinctive thing we, we've learned over the years that just never throw fuel on that fire. We have, okay, we have a rule. <laughs> it's funny because I, I would hear it as one of the techniques taught at Focus. And when I heard it taught, I thought, oh, we've been doing that, you know, was that uh, we call it the don't swing for the fence rule. Was that <laughs> when you're arguing, you never swing for the fence. You never throw that one out that you can't take back. You, you keep that one to yourself because you just, you, you will regret it forever after. So we, we all, we've always had a never swing for the fence rule. <laughs> and we never have in 30 years, we've never swung for the fence. And I know there's things she, and, and I guess because we're both self-aware people too, because I know that if she were to swing for the fence, none of those things would be a surprise to me. I, I know what they are. And I'm sure she knows what they are. If, if I was to ever say them about her, we know what they are. We work on them, we, uh, but we never, never never get vicious to each other we're always uh and we we've had kids you never want to have a home that's like that right you know, so, so even if we would ever be that angry at each other we certainly wouldn't do that in front of the kids you know so we we've, we've always had the kids is also a first aid thing first yeah. aid not fuel and there's one more f that i want to bring up before we uh before we guide through the live inspired seven the final f is this focus marines you've been engaged with these folks for quite a while Many of my listeners and viewers are familiar with John O'Leary's admiration of Focus. For those who aren't, Nick, would you would you tell us what Focus's mission is? What what are you guys all about? Focus is it's really to improve quality of life for veterans, and it's so funny because when we get veterans in there, everybody, almost every veteran, we put a thousand veterans through there, almost just shy, like nine hundred something, just shy of a thousand veterans through there, and almost every one of them, to a man or woman, will say the same thing: I didn't want to take the seat for somebody else. They always think there's somebody else who needs it more than them. And we tell them, no, no, you served your country. You raised your right hand and said, I do solemnly swear to give everything up to and including my life. And right now you're not living the life you want to be living. That's what this program's for. And you earned it. You deserve it. And when I tell the guys and gals that you went fought halfway around the world for other people's freedom, you were willing to give your life for people you didn't even know to have human rights, dignity, to have a, a free country to live in, to have safety for your neighbors, to your left and your right. Willing to give your life for all that. Now on the other side of this, you deserve to be living the life that you that you you want to live. You deserve, you deserve, you've earned a good life on this side. And that's what focus does. Focus takes those marine skills that all of us have just and just reframes the trauma they've went through and a different way to look at it. Just like I was talking about you way back, talking with you a long time ago in this conversation with the, how did you learn commitment? You learned it through failure. How did you learn honor? You learned it through unfairness. How did you learn courage? You learned it through fear. Same thing. You're going to learn how to live a good life through bad things that happen to you. 
bad things that happen to you, you're going to figure out how to, how to turn that into a good life here, how to turn that experience, how to reframe it, recontextualize it into something positive. And it's amazing because the instructors we have there are very smart people. Dan and Sona, as you know, they're, 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 they're very smart people. And they have these, these psycho, psychological ways of looking at things, is recontextualizing things. Yes. And all that does, it goes right into the Marine skill set, how to be accountable for your actions, how to, how to not treat people unfairly despite unfair treatment to you, how to be brave when things are scaring you that, shouldn't, that you're starting to realize, maybe they shouldn't be scaring me here, but I need to figure out how to, how to have courage to keep stepping forward into those things how to control your rage, because I guarantee these are all things they learned over in the combat zone. It always looks one way in the war movie, but the actual reality of it is entirely different. You have to have the most uh, good grasp on your temper imaginable to fight in a counterinsurgency, because the enemy will constantly try and trick you, try and rile you up and get you to overreact into like a civilian crowd. You have to be very disciplined in your, in your uh, yeah. psychology. And so it's just a matter of training your mind to realize, you know what, I already know how to do all these skills. I just kind of maybe forgot them after the service. And even just, I mean, just simple things like that. Like, like when we train in the military, especially in the Marines, you train to fail. You train that, that if, if you go on a training evolution, you get everything right, then they wasted your time. The training was too easy. You learn by making mistakes. You grow through those mistakes. And that's reconnecting them to that skill set. And, and watching that pride come back into their, into their ethos when they start realizing, oh, you're right, I am actually good at all these things. I was excellent at all these things. I just forgot how to, how to transfer it into my civilian life. I've been, I was real good at it there, and I kind of forgot it here. And I just got to remember. You mentioned the name, the word 1,000, almost 1,000 graduates. Yes, sir. Many of these individuals come in, and this is their final step in life. Like it is this or, or it's the end of the road. And for the thousand or so graduates to be inspired by you and to be educated by the leadership team at Focus, I have seen firsthand the miracle of life and possibility return to these individuals, these heroes, eyes and belief systems. And it is always <laughs> such a remarkable honor, Nick, to, to see folks who've kind of given up all of a sudden reimagine re re what's possible in their lives. And, and dude, who better than you to say, hey, guys, just the, the past does not need to negatively inform who we can become in the future. That's that's John, you're a big part of that. And I, and I read the because I do a lot of work behind the scenes on that program and I lead all I read all the critiques. I've talked to him at the campfire. You're a big part of that, John. What you do every day, the way when you come into that program, when you come into that camp and you talk to them and they see somebody who can make all kinds of different choices in life but chooses this choice. And they realize, you know what? I can make that choice too, because we got a thing in the Marines. We, we lead by example. We don't do that. <laughs> hey, good luck up there. You know, it's, <laughs> it's follow me. And that's, that's why you're so effective there because you can, you can talk it all day long, but when they see somebody who lives it, who exudes it, then they know, okay, that's the real deal. That's who I'm going to listen to. That's why it's so effective, John. That's why you're effective there. That's why I have a, a Semper Fi flag hanging behind me and a K-Bar <laughs> knife above that and a focus hat above that. All right, man. Well, the, let the, the, the mutual admiration party come to an end here with the Live Inspired. <laughs> Nick, we asked all of our guests seven questions that tie all of them together. And uh, I think it reveals a little bit of their insight into the world and also ultimately into what matters. So here we go. 
what what is the most influential or most powerful book that you've ever read? So what's the best book you've ever read? Norman Schwarzkopf's It Doesn't Take a Hero. Wow. Tell me about that. Why? Because he says it, it was, I read it as a young Marine. And one of the things he says in there is someday when I'm in charge, it's not going to be like this. He was a young officer in the Vietnam War, and he was very, very dissatisfied with a lot of the leadership decisions that were made over him. And he just, instead of griping about it, instead of complaining about it, he said, someday when I'm in charge, it's not going to be like this. And it wasn't. He became the, the head of the, the entire United States military, and he made the military that defeated the Iraqi army in 100 hours. He made it the, the modern thing that backed down the Soviets, that backed down the entire world. Yeah, he's, he was an inspiration. I think he passed away a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago. Too bad. He was a, he's a great American. Norman Schwarzkopf, doesn't take a hero. Nick, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a, a little kid growing up in Terre Haute, Indiana, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? To be so positively motivated for no good reason, because now I, the older I get, the more I have to look for those reasons. <laughs> when I was a kid, I swear every day it was just I had a smile on my face that you couldn't have peeled off. There's times now that I have to I have to, you know, look for a reason to put it on. I'll, I'll still find that reason, but it doesn't come as, as just naturally that just this is a just because just mm. because. Just because, man. Hey, Nick, if your home caught fire and your bride, April, your, your son, Rich, I consider him your boy and your other son, Nick Jr., they're all out safely. The animals are all out safely. And you have an opportunity to run back into your home and grab one item. What's the one thing you would grab? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm going to think of a perfect answer to this after I get off of here. I'm not a very material guy. Uh, I'd have to be the drill instructor hat, my Marine Corps campaign cover. I still have it to this day. I have it on. It's, it's weird. I keep it in my garage. And it's one of my most prized things, but I keep it in my garage. But that was one of the hardest things I ever earned in my life and one of the hardest things I ever did. And one of the things I was most proud of accomplishing was doing that. It is a worthy thing to bring up, as is the Purple Heart and the Silver Star. So a group of guys who were all Purple Heart recipients. And he, one guy said it's so funny. He said, we're all the guys who stood up and said, what? When somebody yelled duck. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for standing up. And we're, we're not quite through yet. So sit back down for a moment longer, Nick. We got just a couple more questions to go. If you could sit on a bench, I know as a, as a military man, you don't like to sit often, but if you could sit on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to? Wow. Oh, I got it. Abigor Kalani, and he's still alive. He's an Israeli tank commander. He fought in a place called the Valley of Tears, the Vale of Tears. He saved the entire nation of Israel with the, in this just, just brilliant tank fight. I, the only reason I've heard of him was I was on the range one day and there was a book laying there and I just had to kill some time. And there was a book laying there on a, on a table inside the range house. And it said a tank commander's story. I'm okay, I'll read this. And I picked it up and it was a story of an Israeli battalion commander who fought in the, the Yom Kippur war. He also fought in the six days war, but fought in the Yom Kippur war, saved the entire nation against a Syrian tank onslaught. It's one of the most incredible books I've ever read. I, I reread, it's called the Heights of Courage now in the reprint. And uh, I reread it every so often. And I guess that should have been my book from the original part, from the first question. But uh, Abigor Kalani, and he's just, he's an absolute inspiration. He's still alive today. 
and I, I've always thought about, I, I should look up some way to actually meet this gentleman. So I would love to just talk to him. And I'd just love to shake his hand. Abigor mm -hmm. Kalani. Great answer. What's the best advice that Abigor or your father or some drill sergeant or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice, Nick, you've ever received is what? My father told, told me, treat people with respect and hold them accountable. And I've, I've tried to do that with every human being I've ever dealt with in life. Treat mm. people with respect and hold them accountable. And I don't care who they are, or what they are. Um, there was a, a preacher in a church we attended. We've, it was, we didn't stay with that church very long, but this, this uh, minister was very good. And he said this one thing. He said, you've never met a mere mortal. Everybody you meet has an immortal soul. And just keep that in mind on every, every interaction you deal with. And my father's advice combined with that, I, I, yeah, never take yourself too seriously. Realize that everybody you meet is, is an amazing person. Hmm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self, Gunny? Oh man, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I, because I, I, I think every mistake I made led me to who I am now. Every dumb thing I did led me to who I am now. I don't have a moment in my life that I look back and I think, oh, if only I'd have known this then. Oh yeah, I would get a four hundred one k. I'd have told myself that. Get a four hundred one k and start dumping money from your paycheck right. into it. Get a 401k and good luck. <laughs> Buy Apple, get a 401k and uh, keep learning lessons. Nick, thank you for not bullying anybody else and for being a lifelong learner and an example to me and every other individual that meets you that is impressed and inspired by your stories. The final question is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Nick Papadich, how would you like your one sentence to read? This is what I would like it to read. I can't claim it does read that. I wish it would. I would want them to say the world was a better place because you were here. I, I'm not arrogant enough to actually say that, but I'd want people to think that, that while I was here, I, I, I made whatever room I was in a better place by being there. I helped somebody in that room. I, I was kind to somebody in that room. Something, something that just wherever I was was a better place because you were there. Mm. That's how I'd want to be remembered. But that's a that's a boast. That's something we all have to work on all the time. Well, brother, you're doing, you're doing the work. And uh, one of my friends one time said to me, may the winds always be in your sail and the, and the waters always be with you. And Nick, you, uh, you model this, my friend, you are an awesome example, a great friend and a, a hero. So thank Thanks, you. Thanks, John. We said fair winds and following seas. We have a similar one. Thank you for living it, man. Simplify. God bless. And uh, tell my friend April, hello for me. Yes, sir. God bless you, John. Thanks for having me aboard. My friends, that is Nick the Gunny Papadich. My name is John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live inspired. Well, I just listened back through this episode with Sergeant Master Papadich. He is a Marine's Marine. He's a tough man. He's also a dear friend. And after listening to it now, just passively in the background, playing as I'm taking notes, what blew me away is as he is talking about his upbringing, as he's talking about enlisting, as he's talking about going through 13 weeks of incredibly difficult training, and then ultimately becoming a sergeant master drill instructor himself, and then serving overseas several times, and being wounded, and barely surviving, and losing his eye, and 90% of the use of the other eye, and constant migraines, and lots of challenges through it all. 
Did you notice how frequently Nick laughed and Nick shared joy and Nick shared humor and he shared his faith? One of the quotes that I wrote down several times was this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. During this season of COVID, this season of divisiveness nationally, this season of struggle for so many of us individually, that's one of the things, one of the hopes, one of the prayers that we have here at Live Inspired is that something we may share within this podcast might indeed strengthen you. If you'd like to learn more about episodes that we have here at Live Inspired, why not visit me right now on the primary website? You can find that at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I'm going to give you the name one more time and then encourage you to check out one episode in particular. So the website again is johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And the episode that you may want to learn a little bit more about is with another great hero that we can celebrate today on Veterans Day. No, he's not personally a veteran, but he spent a lifetime serving our veterans well because the role of Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump profoundly changed his life. If you want to hear about how that role changed the life of Gary Sinise and now what he's doing through his life, through his efforts into a world that is longing for it, Cruise on over right now to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. You're going to love Gary. I want to thank you for checking that out. I want to thank you for being part of this conversation today. And I want to remind you, my friends, that in spite of the headwind we face, the foundation does indeed remain firm. This is good news. And the best days are indeed in front of us. So for this time and until next time, I'm looking forward to it already. My name is John O'Leary. Thank you, veterans, for your service and friends, listeners, leaders. This is your day. Live inspired. My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity and inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, We are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at keeleycompanies.com. 